0: It's interesting to me too, as just someone who, as a, an English professor who just rereads books all the time, mm. um, of you know, and and knows how much I get out of doing that. Um, to kind of think about, I don't know, just in Judaism, it's kind of built into your life to kind of just keep rereading and hearing the same stories and hearing, you know people give sermons on the same story every year, but finding a different angle. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's um, rather than feeling, I guess in some ways it's, it's repetitive and cyclical, but then in other ways it's,
1: it's about finding something new. Welcome to Purple Honey, a gathering of female voices where we explore in conversation, the sweet spot between Jewish wisdom and feminine spirituality. I am your host, Jody Bayliss. We are in the time of year in Jewish time, where we have ended the yearly cycle of reading our foundational text, Torah, only to immediately begin the ritual of rereading it over again. So as we're in the new year of storytelling, of seeking for meaning between the lines by lining up words written and not written with events in our world and in our lives, we look to the wisdom of reading and writing. I am in conversation today with novelist Rebecca Entel. Rebecca is Associate Professor of English and Creative Writing at Cornell College, where she teaches courses in creative writing, multicultural American literature, Caribbean literature, and the literature of social justice, to name a few. Just as reading a book is full of rich discoveries, our conversation was full of them as well. We talk about Rebecca's novel, Fingerprints of Previous Owners, set on the small island of San Salvador in the Caribbean. The story takes place at a resort that was built on top of a slave plantation, and we experience the story through the eyes of Myrna, who is a maid at the resort, who also spends time secretly slashing her way through overgrown brambly and thorny bush to explore the remnants of the slave plantation and to discover the untold past of the island. Rebecca first ventured to San Salvador to research and develop a literature course in 2010. She began to free write about what haunted her, like garbage washing up on the shore that came from all corners of the world, like a ketchup bottle with Russian writing on it. She wrote about acquiring the skill of using a machete to explore ruins of the plantation. What emerged was the voice of her narrator, Myrna, and the beginnings of what would become her novel. We talk about the themes emerging in her novel, Fingerprints of Previous Owners, as well as her current work in progress, which is set in Cleveland, Ohio, and tells the story of the daughter of a Holocaust survivor and her discovery of her father's secret past, which he has written down. Here is our conversation you're rereading, you know, as a professor, you reread Mm -hmm. your book. Do you
2: reread them each, like each year before, um, before like holding a a class or are you doing it just to stay fresh or? Um, both. I mean,
0: whenever I'm teaching, I reread the book, even if I've read it like 10 times before,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: um, uh, just because there is so much I forget. Um, Or even if I haven't forgotten, there are things that I notice differently, Um, and I want it, you know, I want it to be as fresh in my mind as it is for my students. Um, And then I also, as a writer, I reread books um, that I love because, you know, when you read something the first or even the second time, you're just kind of soaking it in and getting the story. Um, And then when I reread it, you know, a third or fourth time, I can really kind of see how the not see what the writer was thinking, but I can see how the book is put together, mm. like understand the structure differently in a way that I can't when I'm just reading it the first time and kind of reacting
2: to what's happening. I was just curious what you found, like as a child read, reading, what was nourishing for you? It's funny that you ask that because
0: I'm thinking when I was a kid, I used to love rereading books and I think most kids do um mm. like they want to hear the same stories over and over and just thinking about that that as adults I think people don't do that as often even when they love a book um mm. but
2: mm. Yeah. that really yeah go ahead go ahead well that that really strikes me because you know um as a parent I'm like oh my god I have to read Angelina Ballerina again <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> right and 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 I think maybe your point like it if that was like the norm for for uh, adults that like if we could reframe that um Uh like what might we discover
0: (laughs) yeah and i think people it's interesting because people like to rewatch their favorite movies over and over again right i mean even though you know what happens and you know you know every line i feel like people as adults do that more often than they reread things. Um, Yeah. But I think it's just a different kind of pleasure you get, right? There's the pleasure of not knowing and seeing Mm -hmm. what happens in the story. And then there's the pleasure of knowing and like watching it unfold again. Right. Um, And like waiting for your
2: favorite part and that kind of thing. Right. One kind of like broad opening question is is about you as a a reader. Um, Uh Uh-huh. And um, and it's funny. I think I read somewhere in an interview that as a child your favorite book was Ramona Quimby. Um, oh yeah, I was obsessed with those
0: books.
2: Can you say that again? You were. I was obsessed with those books. You were. What? <laughs> yeah. um, I was so delighted because my daughter's just finishing her first reading. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was. I was just curious what you found, like, as a child read, reading, what was nourishing for you?
0: Um, in those books or generally? Either. Uh, yeah, um, and I want to reread those books. I haven't reread them in so long, but I did buy them for my niece recently. <laughs>
2: um,
0: I think the Ramona books and a lot of books that I was really into as a kid um, were kind of about Um, girls who were a little bit offbeat or quirky or a little bit of, you know, they were loners a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that appealed to me because I was and am kind of, you know, a person who likes to kind of hole up by myself and read or write or do things on my own. I have this very distinct memory of, I think I was maybe in third or fourth grade, and um and like I had finished reading all of those books and I'm sure I had reread them too. And I remember like reading them with my mom at night. We used to like switch off chapters and read to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like a very visceral memory for me, like sitting mm-hmm. in my bed with my mom doing that. Um, but I remember writing my own story about the characters after I'd finished um reading all the books. So I didn't know the word fan fiction then. I don't know if that word existed in the mm. mid 80s. Um, but like I, I, that's the first time I remember doing something like that. I just kind of, I guess the characters just felt so real to me and I didn't want to be done with them.
2: Mm. Um, and
0: I, yeah, so I, yeah, I remember writing this story about them. Um, I'm, like, shoving
2: it away in my, drawer, in my nightstand drawer. So it was like Ramona was, and your love of the characters, that was sort of the bridge for you as a writer to into writing?
0: I think in some ways it was. I mean, I know I was writing before then and making up stories when I was really little, um, but that's the first time I remember, like, thinking about writing a story, like, about the characters. You know, in relation to like a book
2: series. <laughs> um, yeah. Mm-hmm. That so, that resonates with me too. And that, yeah, that you just want to continue, you don't want to say goodbye necessarily. Yeah. You want to, yeah. To continue to live in your imagination. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, fast forwarding all of these years from, from the, the formative, Ramona and Friends series that you <laughs> that you <Yeah>. created. <laughs> um, do you when you, you as you've written um, short stories and it's my understanding um, in the, the uh, piece you're working on right now as well as your novel um, Fingerprints of Previous Owners that those actually started out as short stories. Is your process sort of gradual or just like definitively i'm starting this oh it is so gradual (laughs) Mm.
0: it is very inefficiently gradual um yeah (laughs) i'm a very um fragmented writer so even with short stories like i didn't i i can't think of any time where i started and i had a sense of the whole or sense of the story arc Um, there's always just, you know, kind of these little things, either an image or a phrase or a certain scene or a certain situation between people. Um, you know, it's always something kind of small and fragmentary. And then I have to really just work on it for a long time to see the big picture and see what the story is. Um, so yeah, with fingerprints, um, I started what I thought was a short story, um, just because I'd been traveling to this really interesting island in the Bahamas called San Salvador. And I just kept seeing things that haunted me and that I couldn't stop thinking about. So like there was this beach there where garbage washes up from all over the world um, wow. because of the currents. And, you know, you can go there and do a beach cleanup and you find stuff with all different languages. And it's just so haunting and fascinating mm. um, from a geographical Standpoint, but also an environmental one. And, you know, as a writer, I'm always, you know, I see something a little like that and I start imagining a story. Um, So, so, um, Mm. you know, I just, I I was just seeing all these kind of interesting layers of history on this island. um, And uh, I started writing this short story and it was, it really wasn't even a story. It was just kind of these fragments of things about the island that interested me. Um, And then I'd been working on it on and off for maybe almost two years and um i didn't know where it was going and just kind of this i I was thinking about you know things i tell my students when they're feeling stuck and you know the kinds of exercises i give them to get them writing Um, and there was one i had a grad school professor who um i remember you know saying to us once you know think about something that you know a lot about that most people wouldn't know about Um, and one of the things that I had learned in my time on this island was how to use a machete, Mm. um, which on the island is just like this very common Mm. gardening tool. Like you drive down the street and you just see people out, you know, (laughs) in their yards with their machetes, um, you know, gardening. But, uh, you know, I'd used it because we were going to these historical sites that weren't being preserved in any way. So they were so overgrown that, you know, you had to create the path to be able to get up there. Um, And uh, the person who had taught me how to use the machete had had talked about how it was a tool of gravity. So you don't necessarily have to be super big or strong physically to do it. And if you just kind of hack away, it doesn't actually work. Like you could be hacking with all your might and not cutting through this tiny little stem. Um, And so you have to actually kind of go with gravity and like find the right angle to slice that. Um, and that was all just really fascinating to me thematically, thinking about, you know, characters I wanted to write about who weren't necessarily the people with the power, but were kind mm. of finding finding their way, you know, finding the angle that they could kind of, you know, make their own path. Um, and so I just started describing that just kind of free writing because I, you know, was stuck and I thought about what my professor said, like, and I was like, oh, I'm going to describe, you know, what I learned about using machete. Um and just this totally new voice kind of came out on the page. And it was just this, you know, the person who ultimately became the char- the main character of Fingerprints of Previous Owners. Um, and it was just in her describing, like, using the machete. Um, and that's when I started seeing that maybe it was a book and not just a story. Mm-hmm. Um, because from that point on it just kind of started multiplying and it just kind of you know felt like it was just breaking open and all these new characters are coming in and these new ideas um so yeah it mm-hmm. was a really long process mm-hmm. from the time I started the short story to when the book was done it was six or seven years mm-hmm. um and not working on it full-time it's kind of you know it's not necessarily I think artistic work you can't necessarily work on it full-time you just need time for like your subconscious to marinate ideas yeah here and there um but yeah it's a it it just took me a really long time to see the big picture and even once I thought I had the big picture the book totally changed and I rewrote it two more times
2: oh wow wow yeah so so you so you took these what you described as small fragments themes uh that like themes and in that that sort of became themes and questions that sort of became characters in which you found your character you found the voice of yeah. the narrator of of um of fingerprints yeah. and um i can i can only imagine how much trust that required in order to like i don't know allow the space for that to happen to unfold yeah it is um it's interesting on one hand and
0: um, I think about this so much in my own work, but then also like what I'm teaching my students, (laughs) because, you know, I think that there is this, um, you know, there can be kind of this pressure. Well, if you're, if you're serious about something and you have to be working on it every day and you have to be so motivated and you have to be meeting goals and, you know, you have to have a timeline and a deadline and all these things. And those things are true, you know, Um, but also you need, you know, you need time for your own ideas to develop. Um, and I think, you know, with artistic work and a lot of other kinds of work, you know, it, you know, if you rush it, it's just not as rich as it could be. And, you know, you need your own brain to develop over time, um, and, and be able to see things from multiple angles. Um, so yeah, there, you know, I, especially, you know, I had a sabbatical from work to work on the book and it was this kind of enormous pressure because I, you know, when I'm teaching, I'm so busy. I rarely have any time for writing and it's squeezed in and, you know, the wee hours, um, you know, and on weekends and things. But um, so it was this pressure, like, oh, I have this time and I have to get as much done as possible and it has to be finished. Um, And on one hand, that pressure is good because it, you know, keeps you working. um, And even when you're feeling stuck and not just giving up on it because you don't want to waste the time, but, you know, the book ended up needing much more than that time I had on sabbatical. Um and yeah. I think yeah. the book would never be what it is now if I if I hadn't just accepted that, okay, I can't finish it in this amount of time.
2: Yeah. Um, there's this stuff I don't know yet. And I have to let that happen. Yeah. Um I mean it, it and it it did see I mean and it seems like that those questions were living through your main character of like of that she that she was carrying all these questions and in fact Mm um um it really struck me um the when you were when you were doing some research in salvador and and you came across this book that sort of seemed to be kind of a fundamental piece of of Fingerprints of previous owners, mm-hmm. um, the, um, the well, I don't know if it's called a book, but like a journal. Yeah, it's a plantation journal. So the plantation journal that, um, um, was it sort of annotated as, as a relic of slavery? It was sort of rewritten? Yeah. Yeah. So when it was published, someone titled it that, yeah. And it's the only existing journal in the Bahamas? that sort of documents plantation slavery life
0: yeah it's the only existing book of its type from the bahamas yeah and And what you know it's just so sorry go ahead
2: so i was curious i mean just coming across this this piece of of history while you're in this place um what what questions did that open up for you um well some of the questions are ones that I've just
0: thought about for years anyway. Cause my, um, my PhD is in uh, really literature related to slavery in the U S mm. um, and slave narratives and narratives written by other people about enslavement and things like that. Um, and so, you know, on one hand I I'm always used to kind of coming across texts that I know are not giving me the full story. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So even slave narratives written by, the people who experienced slavery about their experience and what they went through, um, you know, those books were restrained in so many ways. So they had, you know, editors, you know, making decisions for them in some cases. um, uh, If they were writing for the abolition movement, they had pressures in terms of, you know, what's going to convince the audience versus what's going to be so graphic that it will turn the audience off and they won't even read the book, um, you know, and, and those mm-hmm. kinds of pressures. So there's always, you know, there's always stuff missing from the historical record. Um, and um, this book in particular, the plantation journal, you know, it's written by the person who owns this estate. Um, it's not the story that, I necessarily want to hear, right? Like, I don't want to hear the master's point of view. <laughs> That's mm. not what I'm looking for um, and not what I want my students to learn about. You know, I want them to, to have some understanding of, you know, what people went through on this island. And, and the people who live on the island are descended from the people who are enslaved um, on those plantations on the island. So, so it's this very strange book in that it's just kind of a log of work and what's Mm. going on on the plantation so it'll give you like quantities of of what was harvested in a certain field or what was planted or you know if a cow got injured or you know things like that um and it's it's very kind of bare bones um and then all of a sudden in the middle of it there's this uprising from the enslaved people Mm. um but it's only written from you know the the enslaver's point of view and he doesn't understand at all why they rebel against him. <laughs> and he's just kind of giving this, you know, very slight narrative about, you know, what he sees as just this unjustifiable disobedience um that has no reason you know, no reason or logic to it. Um and so you get kind of just these bits and pieces of that and, and how the people are punished. Um and some of them are sent away um to another island. And um, and then the, the book just goes right back to being the plantation journal with, you know, mm-hmm. the weather and what the wind was and what was growing in the fields and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a very, very strange document, and it is really a challenge, kind of a, a great challenge for students in terms of, you know, taking historical materials and seeing what you can make of it and what you can learn that's not
2: explicitly being told to you. And you physically, you yourself alone and with students were like physically yeah. kind of like using this sort of right, this very limited information like in hand <laughs> and yeah. in this like challenging landscape of overgrown, like of overgrown island and, and like kind of literally like planting yourself in the spot.
0: Yeah, I the mean, literally. Is. I mean, we take machetes and like, you know, make a path up to the plantation and you know depending on whether there's been sometimes there are other classes that were just there and the path is a little more open or you know depending on how rainy the season has been and that sort of thing you know some parts of it the plantation are inaccessible um or we need chainsaws sometimes um which i have never done but some other people have done for me Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and you go up there and you're, you're trying to, you know, understand what you're looking at and and understand that what you're what you read in that plantation journal, like this is where it took place. And it, it's kind of amazing to see the students start because I I've been there enough now and and look at some other I've I've looked at some other hand drawn maps that other people have done, and I have a sense of where things are on the, on the plantation. Um, but I, I don't give my students all that information right off the bat. Cause it's just really amazing when they get up there and they kind of figure out like, Oh, this is where the rebellion happened. Like this is the animal watering hole where this happened. <laughs> um, hmm. and you know, have them just start to, to understand what they can figure out. And also what we can't figure out. Like there's so, just so many things that are lost. And even in the years I've been going down there because of, um, Uh, Some really bad hurricane season, you know, some of the structures that were there eight or ten years ago are now just, you know, piles of rubble, basically. Um, So, you know, just, yeah, just thinking about what we started our conversation with, like, things being cyclical but also changing. And Yeah. um, It really feels like that. I go down there. I take students every three years. And then I've gone down a lot in between that when I was researching for the book, and it's like kind of going back to this place where things are the same and yet so different
2: <laughs> and, yeah, um, and kind of going through the seasons and and that really yeah. and that was another curiosity of mine is because mm-hmm. my understanding is there's like sort of there's an environmental component to your oh yeah, as well, because it's this like yeah and so right, and like with. I mean, we're now talking a, a little over a month from her from Hurricane Dorian. And, and, yeah. and so it's to what you were just saying, like the, the cyclical and the changing like you there's this um, your, your novel where there's all these questions and and, um, you know, like gaps of time and untold stories. And then mm-hmm. at the same time where there's this there's this ecology that's changing right in front of our eyes with with our with climate, with us you know, with, yeah. with um severe weather and yeah. what that what that might do to just to changing your you know, um in your next you know, in in um somebody who read your book two years ago versus now.
0: Um Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, I actually originally the reason I planned this course at the Caribbean literature course, um but my college specifically had a grant for um environmental studies courses in the humanities um and that's kind of why we were going down to the research stations to, to develop these courses um you know to definitely have that environmental component and I mean there are certainly lots of places where you can see this, but the Bahamas it's so it's so clear um just how the human history has had an impact on the environment. Mm. Um So, you know, for example, when we're up at the plantation, my students will talk about how they're surprised that the slave quarters are so far away from the master's house cause, and you can't see them. And, like, that doesn't make sense to them in terms of what they know about slavery and surveillance and kind of keeping control of the enslaved population. And then we talk about the fact that the environment would have looked completely different at the time and it wasn't all overgrown with this stuff that's blocking our view and blocking mm-hmm. our path mm-hmm. um, because it would, it would have just been like, like tall hardwood trees. You could see that distance. Um, and then when the, the plantations were trying to grow cotton, which didn't work, um, which is a whole other story of how they were transplanted plantations from the U S to Mm. the Bahamas after the Revolutionary War because they were British loyalists, which is kind of a fascinating story. Yeah. Um, But so they tried to recreate the crops they were growing in the southern U.S. It didn't work. So then they cut down all the trees to sell the lumber Mm. because their plantations were failing. Um, So they basically created the situation where terrible erosion. You can't plant anything on this island because they got rid of all the trees. Um, parts of the island that would have been more protected from storms, you know, not because of the trees, like don't have that coverage anymore. Um, so it's just, it's really, it's like
2: tragic and fascinating. <laughs> um, absolutely. And it really gives you like that, that continual sense of history of like, yeah,
0: yeah. And it feels so present. Yeah, Yeah. and then we also, you know, we we go and look at these coral reefs, we go snorkeling, and it's really exciting, and they're beautiful, but even in the years I've been going there, I can see differences, that they're just dying reefs, Um, and... yeah and then there's you know the beach where the garbage washes up which is in my book and everyone thinks I invented that and I'm like no that's one of the real things
2: mm. <laughs>
0: that I saw there and then you're on the tiny island you have to figure out what to do with your garbage in a way that you know in the US we don't necessarily have to think about it <laughs> it's carried yeah. away for us and it's far
2: away and we never see it um and that yeah, was so my- that that was a piece of the story that I felt, you know, it was like kind of, I had a dark comedy chuckle of just how yeah, they handled yeah, the bottles, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. How then, you know, and it was a great way of, of describing how everybody, how you experience place so yeah. differently depending on who you are. And oh, so yeah. like that water bottle really represented, <laughs> it really, that water bottle that was like, you know, um, there was like a a theatrics about taking it away, yeah, and then it's gonna return back, you know, unrecycled, reused by a guest at this resort, yeah. um, and all the hands that touch it. So the the tourist who's experiencing the island in one way, and then the the person in charge of the garbage hauling, and um, and then the the um the maid or the 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 staff, but in your mm-hmm. your character is the maid um just all the hands that touch that is just that that one thing sort of represents like exp- how how place can be experienced so differently
0: yeah yeah and um yeah when i go down there with my students i mean we're staying at this research station and then there is this huge resort there um and it's i don't know it's just again like tragic and fascinating the effect that this resort has had on the island it's totally changed their food culture like they have all this imported food from the U.S. Um, mm. that they used to have, and um, oh. and most of it, you know, it's like you know, like potato chips, and just you know, not not wow. the best. Wow. <laughs> only food that's coming in, um, and uh, this wasn't well, in the book because I found out about it later, but um, some, there was a a recycling thing for cans at the research station. And, and most of the people coming to the research station are from North America, like from U.S. and Canada. Um, and uh, someone working at the research station told me that there's nowhere to re- – like they don't have a recycling plant on the island, so they're not actually recycling the cans. But all the American, all the U.S. people were, you know, asking where they could recycle their cans and, like, didn't want to throw them away. And <laughs> so they put out this, like, fake recycling bin. <sighs> For all wow. the U.S. college students to, like, throw their cans in, even though they don't have anywhere to recycle them. And I think it would cost them a fortune to, like, try to ship them somewhere to be recycled, and then that wouldn't necessarily mm. be environmentally sound. So, oh, yeah, yeah it's just kind of fascinating. And my students, I mean, they're not getting the tourist experience, because we literally go to that beach and do a mm. cleanup and take the garbage to the landfill
2: and
0: um, and, like see what's going on with the landfill um and if we're lucky sometimes the people working there you know are around and like give us the lowdown on the science behind trying to keep the garbage
2: from poisoning the island Mm -hmm. um but you're really you're really giving them your students this hands-on experience of really like between the machete on the plantation, like the messiness of the past yeah. and the messiness of the, of the present but with yeah. the, with the garbage, like you're it's like a full experience. I know.
0: And I always tell people, you know, it's not something I was trained for as an English professor. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: Using machete, figuring out the landfill. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's what we found. So <laughs> that's what I found on the Island. So that's what we're learning.
2: I um you know I I and and so many there's there's so much I mean you you paint such a beautiful picture um uh, of just rich using rich rich language um around the experience of being on the island um and I you know I I just listened to an interview with Tainahasi Coase about his mm-hmm. his book um mm-hmm. the water dancer i think it's so. called mm-hmm. yeah and he i'm paraphrasing but he um said something that reminded me of your book um I mean, he talks a lot about you know imagining him having for himself having to imagine himself as a slave and as a slave owner yeah. um and there's magical powers in his book memory the mem- magical power is memory where you can oh wow transport it sounds very powerful that you can transport or teleport people out of slavery through the power of memory, and so paraphrasing he he said something like that he wanted to create a place where m- memory is freedom and slavery is forgetting hmm. or memory is freedom, and forgetting is slavery and I was curious with how that strikes you, given that this your story is there's so much about not talking about the past yeah um yeah
0: it's so fascinating i mean um to think about these things so yeah one of the things that you know i probably wouldn't have read this book if i hadn't noticed this or written this book um if i hadn't noticed this um on san salvador is that the um, well, I was struck by the fact that these rooms were not being preserved in any way, um, the rooms of the plantations, because, um, you know, a lot of plantations in the U.S. are preserved in really problematic ways <laughs> where they're yeah. not about learning about the history of slavery at all, but, you know, kind of celebrating mm. the great house um, and that kind of thing. But um, mm-hmm. so, so I just kept thinking, you know, wouldn't this be the place where, you know, the descendants of the enslaved could kind of, you know, take control of memory um, and, mm. and and think about kind of what the public memory should be, what the monument should be, um, how the mm. plantation should be preserved. And then they're just um, – if that's happening, it's not being shared with outsiders. So there certainly could be some kind of conversations about that that weren't being shared with, with me, which is, you know, logical. Um, but I found that people, you know w- – um what kind of people who live on the island kinda of asked me like why are you going up there? Why are you going up to look at, you know, the ruins? And and really the only people going up there were were people like me who were, you know, coming from the US as researchers or teachers and taking students up there. Um and so that was just very interesting to me. And then around the same time that I was doing all this research there and going there, um, I also went to Eastern Europe for the first time. Um, where you know, no one from my family had ever mm. even really talked about going since my grandparents left in nineteen forty seven, uh, right after the war. Um, and so um I was also seeing Holocaust sites. Um mm. Mm. And, and 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 some that felt very um kind of like appropriately memorialized and then some that seemed really problematic to me. Um and, uh, and 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 w- those were sites that I had this personal connection to that I don't have the same personal connection to with, with sites of slavery. But it made me think about the questions really differently because I was having different reactions to being at Holocaust sites. Mm-hmm. It made me question just, you know, my idea as a teacher, a writer, where I'm like, oh, we have to preserve all of history and we should always be talking about it and always be looking at it. and 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 then, you know, and I found that when I was in Lithuania and Poland, like, there were places I didn't want to go. Like, I didn't want to go to Auschwitz. Um,
1: mm.
0: Some pe- some people actually wow. understand that. They're like, how could you not go there? <laughs> and, and, like, my grandmother didn't – she didn't think I needed to go. She kind of felt like, well, that's – you know, if, she kind of felt like, well, people who don't believe it happened or don't know about it, like, they should go see that. But, like, why do you have to go put yourself through that? Mm. Um and so yeah it just, it um yeah it really kind of messed with my mind i guess because i thought i was so sure that you know memory is always i don't know that we should preserve as much as possible mm-hmm. um, mm. and, and does, does this speak to so, are your parents holocaust or your grandparents holocaust guys? My, my
2: mother's on
0: my mother's side they
2: are yeah okay and then, and they left after so they left after,
0: yeah, so they were in a they were in a displaced person's camp um after the war, that's where my mom was born, and then they came to the u s in nineteen forty seven
2: wow it's and it's, it's actually um this is these are some big questions, and like it's amazing that emerged for you, um yeah, of not wanting to and uh I was reading i think a, a, a section in fingerprints where it I think at the beginning where she was first walking through this brambly, sticky landscape, you know, with her machete and ref, it was referred to as the, um, the secret, secret pain. Yeah. And, um, that's sort of when you were saying, yeah, like of not wanting to go to Auschwitz, but right. Like it's just, it, it that, that pain that runs, uh, that runs really deep in the generation.
0: Yeah, and I was trying to, um, you know, I was trying to imagine, like, growing up in Eastern Europe and having those sites, like, where I lived, because that's really the situation on the island, right? I mean, it's right there, and you're, like, living around it every day, and honestly, I can't, like, I can't imagine that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, yeah, I don't even know what else to say about it, just I, I literally can't imagine Growing up as close to Holocaust sites as people are living to slave, slavery sites
2: in San Salvador. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. The um, the it's and um and that's what felt um what felt powerful. Yeah, is um yeah, naming place. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it feels very powerful. Like I um, I, I just took my daughter for the first time. I had never been to Mount Vernon. Oh so, okay, yeah. And uh, totally like, to what you were saying about preserved plantations in the U.S. Yeah. Um, I had no idea that what I would be walking into um was a slave burial. Yeah. And um, had that very strong reaction where, like, like it felt very real, like that the land was holding all of this pain.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um. So, um. Yeah, Toni
0: Morrison describes that in *Beloved*. I can't remember the exact word she uses, but she talks about like, like physically walking into a painful memory like on a plantation Mm. as if it were something just physically you could walk, you know, bump into. Um, Mm.
2: Yeah. Mm. Um, And you, you mentioned that the, what you're working on right now Mm -hmm. is, um, so there's, there's a piece of, the story where um, a young girl thinks her father's writing a Torah that was. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So the, yeah, this new book, it it has a lot of same themes um, that we've been talking about, but it's, kind of much closer to my personal culture and our personal culture takes place in Cleveland. Yeah. Um, University
2: Heights. Oh my God. Oh, I <laughs> yeah. cannot wait. Okay. Oh,
0: thank you. <laughs> um, And lots, lots of food. I guess I have a lot of visual food memories from where I grew <laughs> up that are so different from where I live now. So lots of bagels and delis. And like <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's about um it kind of just came up, I started writing it, um, because, you know, I live in Iowa now. There aren't a ton of Jewish people around. Um, and I, I was asked to give a talk on my campus for Holocaust Remembrance Day one year when we didn't have a survivor to come. And I, it was the first time I'd ever given a talk about my grandparents. Um, and students had all these questions for me that were just interesting to me, ask questions about, like, what it was like to grow up knowing things like that when you were so little. Um, and so, you know, I just was thinking about, you know, growing up somewhere where I did know so many survivors and I knew so much about them. I guess I shouldn't say so much, but I knew some really terrible things, you know, when I was really, really little. Um, and so kind of represents that experience. Um, and then the the main thread of the story is that the, the main character, her father had been a child who was hidden in a convent during the war. That's how he survived. He was very young. Um, and she finds out after he dies, um, that there were things about his war experience that he never shared. Um, Mm. and, uh, she kind of, uh, encounters this man who she doesn't know how he knows her father and it turns out they were hidden together as boys. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's about a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, you know, Mm. memory and, you know, things that you, that you can never know about the past and about other people um, and
2: things that are too painful to share sometimes. Mhm. Wow. Um and is there um where are you where are you at right now with this story? Um That's a good question.
0: <laughs> How would I describe where I am right now? Um Fully, I, it's more than fully drafted. I've got like over 400 pages, so mm-hmm. it's 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 in. I'm in the process of kind of cutting some things, figuring some things out. Um, so I think all the pieces of the story are are drafted, um, and I'm kind of putting it back together after making some big changes. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm hoping to finish it within the next year.
2: That's my plan. And um, when so, in, in you mentioned with your first book as well, just sort of rewriting it a couple times. And um, does the the taking apart and putting back together um, it, it sounds it sounds like a, a laborious process. Um, what does it clarify for you? Um, I think that there are so many things you write
0: as a writer that are for your own education, like figuring things out for yourself, but then mm. don't necessarily stick around for the, the version of the book. Um, so there's a lot of that, just um, especially in this book, you know, fingerprints takes place over a few weeks, but this book takes place over decades. Um, and so that was a telling experience for me. So I have a lot of, you know, Mm. pages and pages where I think I was just kind of figuring out my character's life, like what happened between this childhood memory and, you Mm. know, when she's 25 years old um, and Mm -hmm. just figuring out what her life looked like. um, And not all of that needs to be in the final version. Um, And I'm also writing about, a community so there have been so many characters um, and so I'm also kind of figuring out uh, you know if, if all the characters need to be there or if mm-hmm. I, I, I've been over the last few months I've really been simplifying some things um, and I don't think it's simplifying the story um, but it's just simplifying the number of things the reader needs to keep track of if that makes sense um, so mm-hmm. there, there is some things that were kind of split among multiple characters that I'm realizing it actually makes more sense if one character kind of takes on all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
2: So, yeah. It's so beautiful because like, as you were describing at the beginning of your rereading process as a professor, yeah. Where first you are taking it in and then you're sort of reading it like from looking at the angles of construct. And, and so like you're being real, you're using your skills as a writer now. It's real so interesting how some of those pieces that you've inserted, you're right. Like they're, they're your brain. You're, it's just the pieces that are synthesizing your own understanding and then taking yeah. those out you're making it more accessible for the reader. It's just such a really, it's such a cool interconnected process.
0: Do you think it relates to um, the cooking process? Like, do you think about it this way when you're experimenting with
2: recipes before you mm. would give the food to someone? <laughs> That's interesting. That's a great question. So the, um, well, what's, the interesting thing about cooking is that there's the, a technical and a creative component. Uh-huh. And so that it has to be, yeah, this is really interesting <laughs> Like that, right. Like you, that it has, there has to be enough direction and like just bare bones functionality to a recipe mm-hmm. um, in order for like success to happen. Um, and then there's the nuances of like, Oh, I need, should be, seeing, and this is just how I like to write. And I think a lot of other, um, the cookbook writers that I like, like these bodily cues of like, Oh, it should mm-hmm. smell like this, or it should mm-hmm. look like this. So like, that's sort of a, and that's a different part of, right. The, the, it sort of feeds into that, like, let's have this recipe be successful. But, um but it's, I think in my, I think for me, in my mind, like the, the more important part, which is like the, that we, we want to know how the onion to get the, the cook to know like how the onions should smell is a much more nuanced um, part of the cooking process that will like, in my humble opinion, like make their lives better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Cause that's like that intuitive part of it. That's so interesting. And that I
0: think that, everything you're saying sounds to me applicable to fiction writing too.
2: <laughs> I love like, it.
0: Like, like what are the technical things I need to master to get my reader to like cry at the right part, oh, <laughs> like have God. the right like bodily reaction or emotional yes. reaction.
2: Yes. The, cause right. Like the, cause the rhythm, the rhythm is so important. And I'm, yeah. and, and it's funny cause, um, and I, um, I, I recently took a, contempt, a contemporary prayer writing class. Oh, okay. And um, it was the what struck me in that course was the rhythm of like where's the prayer part of the prayer? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um 'cause Because I was kind of avoiding the prayer part of the prayer because I of like <laughs> <laughs> like I like you know it feels like there's poetry around it, right? <laughs> and then, yeah um but that also seemed to be like about rhythm and and like how the rhythm right it's so it's so important to have that aha moment for the reader yeah or the cook yeah yeah and it's it's funny i mean really connecting this to to Judaism and the Jewish cycle um it's it that three days it's like kind of amazing to me that three days a week Forever, <laughs> the the the, the, the it, there's this Jewish tradition of publicly reading a piece of text, um, yeah. that's thousands of years old and parading it around and and, in, it. and right and kissing it <laughs> and dancing and and um and to I was reflecting on this from reading fingerprints is that there's this this um such like such a hidden history and of slavery. And here the Jewish tradition is to actually read about like read and like read it out loud publicly three times a week that the yeah. book, because it's basically a book of slavery. I mean, it's like overall, yeah. like it's the central. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's like, Oh my God. Like Jews like dance around. So, and everything's around. We were slaves in Egypt. So, it's, so like, that was, that was kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, no, that's I hadn't thought about it quite
0: that way. That's really <laughs> fascinating. And um Yeah, I mean it it's just amazing to think that we're that we're reading the same words that were read, you know, five thousand years ago. Um and the reason why is because people just kept saying them mm. over and over and over, right? <laughs> mm. Uh Mm.
2: and that and that was the other uh, another question from reading your book and and reflecting on this this holiday where we finish a reading and begin a reading is that it seemed it felt to me that um you know because because I'm personally really interested in like feminine like Um, feminism and Judaism and like where all of these stories that are um, not explicitly told about women, like bringing forward those stories. um, It felt like your narrator was becoming part of the story by seeking out the story. Oh yeah. That's just an interesting way to put
0: it. She's really shifting the story um, by going where she's not supposed to go and finding things out that she's people don't want her to talk about. Right. Um, mm. and then, well, I won't give away too much for people <laughs> who might hear this and go read the book, but mm-hmm. she, you know, her actions ultimately lead to more storytelling mm. and communal, communal storytelling. Um, mm. that I guess, I mean, it, it goes along with what you're saying about Judaism too that, um, you know, I didn't want those moments in the book to be, um, kind of moments of 100% healing, um, or, you know, total rectifying of the situation. That there's also this, this pain to it. So it's, it's both healing and good for the community and really painful, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and kind of complicated for the community. And, and I feel like that with, um, you know, I don't know. It's the time of year we're in, and with the Jewish holidays, I mean, they're they're serious and somber, and they're celebrations. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, I don't know. You can you can I guess you can you can see kind of restarting the Torah as this, you know, being stuck in place sort of space. you know starting all over again with the same thing and yet also it's 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 kind of celebratory rebirth that we're starting again Mm -hmm. um and and doing the same thing
2: again um and that we haven't lost it we haven't lost the ritual Mm. yeah and perhaps that like the the cycle just the the circle that the, the cyclical nature of it is sort of the container that can hold that that sadness and yeah, rejoicing. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for your, for your um, wise words and conversation. Um oh, thank you. It was so great to talk to you. You too. And if you ever, if you need a reader, when your book is ready, I just would <laughs> love, <laughs> or ever just like want to bounce ideas around. I love, I, I love, just the way you think it's just so um it, there's there's so much depth and i um and it's i don't know i enjoy talking to you it's great
0: well i really really appreciate that and same to you with recipes
1: oh, oh good <laughs> yeah and now for some sweet notes sweet note one There is a powerful connection between story, and place, and memory. I can visualize Rebecca standing in the thick of an overgrown and prickly part of the island of San Salvador and finding her path with a machete, and then taking students to experience standing in a spot of significance and the discovery that comes from physically remembering. It makes me think of all the physicalities around walking with the Torah. We parade the Torah around a room, we kiss it, we walk around with it, we read it, we sing it, we, we sing about it, we hold it up, we say blessings, we roll it back up, dress it, and then return it back to the ark. These all feel like steps on a path as well. Perhaps this is like a clearing in itself to make way for reading words, some that may resonate, some that may not. But regardless, we are planting ourselves in this story each week with our own discoveries to make. Also related to Rebecca's experience in San Salvador, I highly recommend reading a piece she wrote called A Tourist in My Own Book, where she recounts her time in San Salvador and her impressions on being in the island and in that landscape and finding her way and using a machete, you can find it on LitHub and I'll add the link in my website. Sweet note two, an incomplete story is an invitation. In fingerprints of previous owners, as well as her work in progress, both stories involve an incomplete or mysterious text. These texts, though incomplete, serve as jumping-off points for her main characters to search, seek, and discover. I was listening to Torah scholar Aviva Zornberg the other day, and she talks about how incomplete or imperfect texts need to be read over over and over and over again. And I'm paraphrasing here, it is perfection via imperfection. It's all alchemy. It's all how we incorporate the text. The Torah is life, and in its its most immediate words, they're all kind of floating up and opening up things for us in our lives. I love how she how she describes the words and um, the relationship to the incomplete story. I find it interesting that the last commandment in the Torah is to make the Torah new again, and. As reviewing and interpreting and creating commentary is central to reading the text of Torah itself, we're urged to be active readers, to mine for meaning, to search across the entirety of the text and find rhythms and patterns across the panorama of the text. To read Torah is to grapple with contradictions, to rub up against what is off-putting or confusing, to take solace in meaning and to discover what is new each year, as we are new each year. Sweet note three, communal storytelling is a space where we can connect to old or incomplete stories and make new ones. The hidden stories in fingerprints of previous owners felt like characters in and of themselves. Not to spoil too much, but communal storytelling does bring some sort of resolution or healing to this particular novel. And it struck me how Jewish tradition is dedicated, if not emphatic, about reading history over and over and over again and publicly recounting these stories together. Not only to retell, but to give our own take so we are all responsible to fill in what we might identify as missing. This, in fact, folks, is why Purple Honey exists, to collect women's voices, female voices, female-identifying voices, so that those voices can bubble up and, and um, bubble out of in between the lines of, of our very own Torah. I actually recently heard um, on the podcast Gehila Israel, Rabbi Amy Bernstein was describing how reading the Torah is like a mirror and hearing someone else's perspective is like a window. And I love this description as well because um, how just reading something like Torah or a book uh, has that power to, for, to help us look inside of ourselves and then also to agree, um in talking about it with other people to gain that broader perspective. So with that, may whatever you read this year be a mirror and may you be with a community that helps to create windows in your life may we all find stories to complete and may we all find healing in stories i would like to thank rebecca Tell for our conversation it was so fun reading a book and get, then getting to talk to the author about it also I have known Rebecca since I was like five years old, and getting a chance to talk with her after many, many years was like continuing a story set very, very long time ago that started in Cleveland, Ohio. I'd like to thank Ethan Bayliss, composer, sound engineer, co-producer, and life partner. And I'd like again to thank all of you, and as we kick off this new year of reading, um, I just hope we all find joy in that, uh, whether we're talking about stories together or reading in our own little nooks. I am Jodi Bayless, and this is Purple Honey.